And uh, church, you can open up your Bibles if you have them. You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 20. And I would like to show you a picture, show you a picture of my daughter, Autumn. Yeah, here's Autumn, everybody. Yes, that's right. I'm showing you this picture because I'm not very cute, and she is very cute. Right, so I'm hoping that her cuteness will increase my rapport with you this morning. That way uh, we can get off to a good start. So, so over the last few months, uh, Autumn and I have been working together on recognizing her numbers. Uh, she is able to, to count from 1 up to 20 at this point, which is, you know, cool, very good. Uh, but, but seeing the numbers... And knowing which numbers they are, like if she sees them on a page, that's actually a different skill than just being able to count from 1 up to 20. And so we've been working at this skill. As I've been working with her, though, I've been learning something about what it means to see, what it means to actually see something. So let's take the number 5, for example. Let's consider the number 5 together. At first, when Autumn is seeing the number 5, her seeing was simply kind of, uh, she saw a random assortment of lines and shapes. Uh, some of those lines are straight, some of those lines are curved. But at the most basic level, all she saw was kind of this jumbled collection of lines, right? And, and so at the most basic level, this could have been... Six or seven or nine or ten. You know, it could have been any of the numbers because it was kind of random the way that she was encountering it. So instead of her just kind of seeing at that most basic level of lines that are interacting with each other, we had to start recognizing. We had to do a different kind of seeing. We had to move from looking at the number to actually observing the number, right? Taking in the whole picture of the number. So I started asking her, as we looked at the number, what shapes do you observe? Well, she said there, there was a line at the top. If we could keep that five up there, that would be great. Uh, there's, you know, there's a line at the top of it, right? So that's good. And then she noticed that there's a circle, kind of circle at the bottom, but that circle is not all the way closed. Okay, so we're doing some observing. And then uh, I helped her to try to imagine other things like in real life that the number looked like. And so as, as we came up with this, well, we said that five has a hat, and five has kind of a big belly, right? Yeah, there's a big profile there. So, uh, so yeah, that's what we figured out with five. And so we started, the whole point of this was to get her to look at the number as something more than a random assortment of lines, right? So, so now that we've uh, done this for a long time, we've progressed actually into a new kind of seeing of the number. We've moved beyond kind of the observation and trying to figure out what's there. And now when she sees the number, she actually, she sees it and she understands it, right? She gets it, right? She knows that it is five and it comes before six and it comes after four, right? She instantly knows as soon as she sees that number what it is and where it is in the sequence. The random assortment of lines that used to be the number five now are recognizable to her when she sees that symbol as the number five. She sees it and she understands. So why do I talk about all of that? Well, as we come to Scripture, the New Testament, what we have, the, the New Testament was written to us in the Greek language. And Greek is actually a very specific language. It has multiple different words that emphasize subtle nuances. And the Bible has three different words 
for the word seeing. It actually has more words than just three for the word seeing, but I'm going to emphasize three for us this morning. And, and these words are important because they get at the nuances of what I was talking about with Autumn. So the first kind of seeing is the word blepo. It means to see or to look at. So, uh, so imagine you might observe a situation. You might say, I see that there is substance with the color red on the ground. Right? So that's, that's kind of at the most basic level, the information that you're taking in, that's what you see. But then you can kind of move to a second level of seeing, which is theoreo. Uh, it means to observe closely or consider. You know, this is where we started putting together, okay, what are the features of this particular shape that we're looking at? We get our English word theater from this word. Right, that, that there's, uh, the, the implication is there's something to be shown. There's something that you have to try to gain, something uh, to observe. You're trying to see the show that is being displayed. So, so with the red liquid, you might actually move into asking a question, well, what is that red liquid that's on the ground? Right, and so then the third level of seeing is this word idon. It means to see and understand with mind and heart. Right, so this is where you would move into this stage of saying, you know what, there is a red liquid on the ground, and I think that somebody is bleeding and possibly injured. Right, so you've now put together the pieces. The, the thing that you saw has now transferred into your brain as like actual information. You get what's happening. These are the three levels of seeing. Do you see the difference between these words? Yeah. So our text today uses all three of these words, but unfortunately, with English translations, it uses the same English word to translate all three of these words for us. And so this is a time when knowing the original language actually helps us to see what is really going on. So for what it's worth, I'm not sure what brought you here today. There are some of you who may be coming here, and you blepo, right? You, you kind of are here, but you're not really interested in investigating what's going on. You're just kind of observing you're not, trying to, you're not trying to gain information, though. You just kind of see it, right? You look at it, right? And so, so Easter might be an obligation for you, or you, you might be glad to be with family, but you honestly, like, maybe could care less about what happens here, right? So that's, that would be blepo for you. But then you might, there are some of you who are here, and you're observing and considering what's happening, which that, what that means is that you're interested in the things of God. Or, at the very least, you care about eternity and you are searching for more clarity about eternal things. The Greek word theoreo describes you well. You are seriously considering Jesus. And I just want to tell you, keep it up. Like, it's, it's a good thing. It's worth it to continue considering Jesus. And then there are those of us who love Jesus. And we're here because we see and understand what the resurrection means. We are here to celebrate our resurrected king, the one whom our lives belong to. We, the Bible says, I don. We see and understand with our heart and mind. So we're going to look to scripture. If you don't have a Bible, don't feel bad because uh, I'll have most of our scripture passages up on the screen this morning. But whatever kind of seeing describes you, this passage is an invitation to everyone to see Jesus in a way that you hadn't considered seeing him before. So the writer of this passage, his name is John. John, uh, for what it's worth, he is a masterful writer. He uses literary devices all the time as an attempt to try to draw the reader in. And the same is true when he tells us about Jesus' resurrection. He's going to tell us the story of four different people and how they saw the risen Jesus. 
So the first person he tells us about is Mary Magdalene. Uh, The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about, about her, but we know two things for sure. The first thing that we know is that we know Jesus set her free from demonic possession. There were seven spirits that possessed her, and Jesus set her free from that spirits. And then from that moment, she believed in Jesus and found wholeness and healing and purpose in a life full of following him. All right, so that's what we know about Mary. And Mary was there at Jesus' crucifixion, and now she is here at his tomb to mourn the death of her master. So verse 1 of John chapter 20 says this, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We're going to pay attention to the word saw, okay? Because this is the first kind of seeing that we talked about, that word, blepo. Like, there's no investigating happening with Mary in this moment. There's not even much thinking or considering. She simply looks and sees that something is out of place, right? She looks at the fact that something is out of place. And so John is using this word to let us know, like, Mary's kind of unaware of what's actually going on right now. It doesn't begin to occur to her that Jesus is actually alive. So verse 2 says this. So so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter is one of uh, Peter and the other disciple, they're the two other characters in our story, so now we're up to three characters. The other disciple, for what it's worth, this is the gospel writer, this is John kind of cluing us in, this is how he writes himself into the story, right? So, so now we have three characters, and I want you to notice Mary. Mary didn't even really consider the details of what she saw, but she immediately jumped to an assumption, right? When something was out of place, she assumed that someone had stolen Jesus' body. Now, it's worth stating that right now, Mary is riven with grief and fear. Grief because she just lost her master, the person that she had dedicated nearly the last three years of her life to. Fear because she knows that there are parties that are actually interested in persecuting her and the other disciples. And so what better way for them to do that than to steal Jesus' body and to frame the disciples for stealing Jesus' body. Right? That's, that's what she thinks happening. She instantly jumps to kind of the worst case scenario, which is if something is out of place, that must mean that they're out to get us. They're trying to persecute us. And so her fear and her grief led her to make this assumption. And for what it's worth, it was a fair assumption because the people who killed Jesus hated Jesus and his disciples. So now we have three characters who are grieving and afraid, and none of them have any category for a resurrected Jesus. Verse 3 says this. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So this is John telling us, you know, giving us a little hint as he writes the story. Hey, uh, we raced to the tomb, and I I beat him there, just so we can clarify that for the record books. And then verse 5 says this, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John now has arrived at the tomb, and it says he stooped to look in. So, So he's telling us, that he made the same assumptions that Mary made, right? So he, he pokes his head into the tomb, and the word used for saw here is the word blepo, right? It's that first kind of seeing. He looked 
at the empty tomb. He looked inside the empty tomb and just saw that there was no body there. There's just linen claws. And so he saw with his eyes and him seeing with his eyes kind of led him to make the same kind of assumption. Oh yeah, she's right. But his assumptions kept him from understanding what was going on. So verse six, then Simon Peter, here comes Peter trailing behind. Uh, Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen. So, so John only poked his head inside the tomb. Peter actually went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So here the story changes a little bit. For Peter, what has happened was so unusual that he was not content just to take their word for it, right? He doesn't just look at the stone or he doesn't just poke his head into the tomb. Peter goes all the way in and starts investigating what's happening. He starts doing the second kind of seeing that we talked about, this word theoreo. He is observing and considering the things that are there. And that's what John is letting us know. Peter's taking this a little bit more seriously. And so notice how John writes to us all of the details that Peter picks up as he is observing. Right? There are linen cloths there. And also, it's, this is interesting, the cloth that covered Jesus' face is there. But this is unusual. It's folded up quite nicely. Like, if there were thieves who were coming to steal this body... Why in the world would they take the time to fold up this face cloth nicely? That doesn't make any sense, right? This would, this would have been like a smash and grab kind of ordeal. They would have had to get in and get out. There's a, nobody had time to fold this face cloth, face cloth. So Peter, he knows that something else really significant is happening, but he doesn't know what. So John doesn't give us much of their dialogue and their back and forth in this situation, but I imagine what happened was something like this. John says to Peter, as Peter is trailing behind, John says to Peter, you know, I just looked and I don't see his body anywhere. Mary was right. I think they stole it. And Peter goes, what? No way. I have to see this for myself. And so Peter goes into the tomb, and I imagine John saying to Peter, Peter, there's nothing to see. It's just as Mary said it was. And Peter says, wait a second. Come see this. If they stole him, why in the world would they fold his face cloth? So John 20, verse 8 says this. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw, this is our third kind of seeing, seeing and understanding with the heart and mind and believed. So real quick, I want to invite you to see something with me. Uh, A little note about Jewish tradition and hospitality here. When you, as, as a Jew, when you were a guest in someone's home and someone showed you great hospitality, what you would do is that you would leave your napkin on the table, unfolded. That that is a message to your host that you appreciate the hospitality that they have given to you. You're letting them know that you you have enjoyed your stay with them. And if someone showed you poor hospitality, you would take the napkin and you would fold it up quite nicely and you would leave it on the table as a way of communicating to them that you were done with their house 
and you are not coming back. So uh, next time if I start folding up the napkin at your house, you'll know that I'm trying to make an obvious passive-aggressive statement there. Uh, right? But that's what they would do. They would take the napkin and they would, they would fold it up as a way of communicating that they were done with their house. And John includes this detail to tell us two things. The first is this, that Jesus was telling his tomb and death itself that he is done and disgusted with them and never intends to come back. The second message that John is telling us is this, as he points this detail out. John is letting us know that he picked up the message that Jesus was laying down. Because when John sees this time, it is that idon seeing, that seeing and understanding. John is telling us, when I saw what Peter saw, I understood what was going on in my heart and mind. And I believed that Jesus was truly alive. Right, so, so verse 20, uh, sorry, chapter 20, verse 9, it goes on. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And verse 10, then the disciples went back to their houses. So, so what John has just recounted for us is that Mary had looked, right? She had looked at the tomb. Peter had gone and observed and considered the tomb. But John got it. This must mean that Jesus is alive. But this, like this is not here, right? This is, is not here to let us know that John fully understood everything that was going on, right? So, and so, so John lets us know, none of them really knew to expect this though, right? John jumped to the conclusion, well, Jesus must be alive because he was able to put those pieces together, but he still wasn't piecing together the scripture and the understanding that Jesus must rise from the dead. And so now, uh, so John and Peter, they go back. They went back to their homes, and now Mary is left in the garden. So I want you to watch what happens with Mary. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Again, she's peeking in like John peeked in. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So Mary, right now in this moment, she is confused because the disciples come, and when they leave, they do not corroborate her conclusion that Jesus was stolen. Right, so they apparently saw something in the tomb, and then they left, but she still doesn't have answers. And she's still stricken with grief. She's still afraid of what's going to take place. So what she does is she pokes her head into the tomb, and it says, the, the word that it uses for see here is the second kind of seeing. Peter, or sorry, Mary actually, she's willing to consider at that deeper level and observe and try to figure out what's going on. She's investigating. And so when she peeks her head into the tomb, she sees two heavenly beings. People like dressed in white robes who are sitting where Jesus' body was. And that was striking to her. She's like, okay, what do I do with this? So verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. So verse 14. Having said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. This is the second kind of seeing still. This tells us that she's now progressed, right? She's, she's progressed from simply looking at things to recognizing that there's something off 
about this situation. She's, she's trying to observe. She's trying to take in the information. And so she turns and she sees, she considers, she observes Jesus there. So she's trying to put these pieces together. And it says in verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, right? These are the pieces that she's put together so far. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And something about the way he said it, right? She's heard her name in that voice before when he set her free from seven demons that possessed her, she's heard her name in that voice. She's heard her name in that voice as she walked with Jesus for three years. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. So verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So here Mary announces to the disciples that Jesus is alive. And when she describes Jesus being alive, she uses the third kind of seeing that we've been talking about. She says, I have seen and understood with my heart and my mind that Jesus in fact is alive. And she appears as the first evangelist to the disciples, right? She, she sees the resurrection. She's announcing the resurrection to the disciples, the good news about what Jesus has done. And I imagine all of them, but one, say to them, Mary, you're crazy. You're a little hysteric right now. Why don't we sit down, take some deep breaths, consider what you're actually saying. But remember, John also saw, right? He also understood. And I imagine John speaking up in this moment and saying, actually, you know what, guys? I think she might be right. She might actually be right about what she's saying. So so then, from mid-morning until evening, all of the disciples together uh, with Mary, they are reeling from the reality of Jesus' missing body. They're trying to figure out what to make of it. I imagine there's a level of disputing, but they, 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 at the same time, in verse 19, it says this, on the evening of that day, The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, right? So they understand the implications of the things that have been going on. If Jesus's body is gone, they'll think that we are to blame, right? So so have you ever had a situation where you thought this can't get any worse and then you were wrong because it does, right? Yeah, like just things keep compiling on top of each other and getting worse and worse and worse. Like surely the death of the person that you have been following for the last three years would have been kind of rock bottom, the lowest of the low. But actually, no, there was a degree lower that you could go. And it is somebody stealing Jesus's body and then framing you for that so that they can come and persecute you. Right? And so they are afraid. That's the experience they're having. The whole thing 
and their mind is now crashing into even greater pieces. So verse 20, Jesus came and stood among them. They're sitting here disputing, they're reeling, they have the doors locked, and then all of a sudden Jesus appears in the middle of them and said to them, goodness, guys, chill out. Shalom, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They saw and understood with their heart and mind. There's literally, there is no other voice that could have come into that room and said the word shalom and have it have any effect whatsoever, except for Jesus. Jesus shows up and speaks these words. And when he says shalom and shows them his hands and his side, Peter with the other disciples who have dedicated the last three years of their life, they finally see and understand that these last three years weren't in vain, that he was telling the truth, that he is indeed Lord and risen from the dead. All of them were present. All the disciples were present in that room at that moment except for one disciple. And he is our final character in the story. Verse 24 says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So what Thomas is saying is the thing that is, going, like, that is going to be required for me to understand is only if I see his risen body and I see the marks in his hands and I see in his side, that is the only thing that's actually going to make me be able to understand and accept and agree with the things that you're telling me. And I will not believe what you are telling me. The 11 of you who I have spent the last three years of my life with, I will not believe you until I see his body. Until I see him standing in front of me. Now John as he tells us this story, he is trying to show us something. He is trying to show us that understanding and believing with the heart is possible without seeing Jesus. He's trying to show us that understanding and believing is possible even if you don't see Jesus. Right? He's showing us that by telling us, number one, that he himself believed before he saw the risen Jesus. That's the first thing that he tells us. He shows us that by telling us that Jesus sent Mary to the disciples as an eyewitness first so that they might believe her testimony before he appeared to them. And of course, we know that the majority of them did not believe her testimony before he appeared to them. And John's showing us that the pattern of seeing that takes place until Jesus comes back is seeing, not, not by seeing Jesus, but seeing by believing the eyewitness testimony that has been given to us. Right, so 
So Mary's testimony, it wasn't enough for the majority of the disciples. They, they waited until Jesus appeared, and then it says they saw him. Then all 10 disciples, right, this is crazy, all 10 of them tell Thomas, all of them have to testify to him, and even with every single one of them, he knows them all, he has, has this personal relationship with all of them, even with every one of them to the last person saying, Jesus is alive, we saw him, it wasn't enough for him. Right, so there are 11 people in this house that all tell you, we saw Jesus and he's alive. But Thomas says, you know what, no, I need to see and understand his wounds and his side. Right, so if you were Jesus, how long would you make him wait? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> like how, how long are you going to ride this thing out? Verse 28, sorry, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed? Because you have seen me? Of course, that's the point of the story, right? That's what John has been trying to tell us. Each of them is believing because they are seeing Jesus. But his point here, Jesus asks this question to say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So I want you to notice two details with me. To see and believe Jesus is the thing that leads to Thomas's confession, right? So John built up this entire chapter to this point to help us see what it means to actually believe in Jesus, right? This whole thing has been building to this point so that we understand when we talk about what genuine faith in Jesus looks like, this is where it is. To believe is to fall down before him and recognize him as your master and your God, the Lord of all creation, the one who is worthy of the devotion of your life. That's what it is to believe in Jesus. That's the first thing that John is showing us here. The second thing that he's showing us is this. Jesus knows that generations of believing Christians will need to experience the blessing of believing only in eyewitness testimony because that is the only thing that they will have. That's the only thing that we have. We rely on the eyewitness testimony, the things that have been written down for us. And so Jesus says, Thomas, you know what? I'm glad you believed, but you need to know you're going to go out and share your testimony and there are a bunch of people you're going to share it with and they're not going to get to be they're not going to be able to see me right they won't see and so you need to know that they would believe your testimony is a special blessing from god remember that thomas okay so four characters you have four characters all of them gain an opportunity to see jesus all of them in a situation where at first they didn't get it, but when they were convinced Jesus was raised from the dead, it says they believed. Their lives were changed forever. 
So the reason that we have these first and second hands accounts uh, in all of the Gospels written down for us, the story about Jesus' resurrection, the reason we have these things is so that those who were unable to witness the physically resurrected Jesus might still be able to hear about the testimony of his resurrection and believe in him. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, no one can ignore that. So what? At the end of each message, I like to ask this question, so what? Because uh, uh, essentially, we're here to say, okay, I've talked for some period of time, right? Uh, And I want to make sure that when we leave, we leave with something to walk out of here with. So what do I do with this? If the Apostle John were here today, I am confident that he would have just won so what for us after sharing his personal testimony with you. And that is this. I was there. Trust me and believe in the resurrected Jesus. Why did John write this book? We've been going through, for what it's worth, if you're you're visiting with us, you're new with us, um, we've been actually going through the Gospel of John for a while now. And so John chapter 20 actually helps us to see exactly why it is that John chose to write down and pen this book. After teaching testifying about the resurrection of Jesus, John says this in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. When you pick up the Bible, each book is penned with a purpose. And, and when we pick up the book of John, John has a specific goal for every reader, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John doesn't just want you to see with your eyes the facts of his resurrection. John, John doesn't want you to stop at simply scrutinizing and trying to figure things out. John wants you to go all the way and believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior. So you might be sitting here asking me this morning, okay, well, how do I do that? If, if John wants me to believe, how do I cross that line of faith? So I, I want to invite you to consider doing that with me. I want to give you three ways that you can respond to him. And it's a simple acronym, A-B-C. A, admit to God that you make a crappy master for your life. You make a terrible God for yourself and that you want Jesus to be your Lord. B, believe with your heart and with your mind that he is who he says he is. And C, confess your faith. Tell somebody that you believed in Jesus for the first time today. Let somebody know that your trust and your faith and your hope are finally in him. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you want to do that with me, I invite you to pray with me as we prepare to worship together. Lord Jesus, I have personally become aware of how terrible a Lord of my life I make. How terrible a master of myself I am. Lord, I choose things that are not healthy for my soul. I choose to operate in ways that are not 
beneficial for those around me. And Lord, I recognize that being such a terrible God for myself, I need constantly to turn and trust you as my Lord and my God. I I know there are people in this room who are very uh, aware of those same things for themselves. I know that this church is a church full of people who recognize that we are no good if we are leading ourselves. We need you to lead us. Mm. And so, Lord, we believe that, in fact, you are the Son of God, the one who has come, the one who was promised throughout ages of Israel's history, the one who, even back at the very beginning, it was told to us that he would crush the head of the serpent, the one uh, that, that we have been promised and foretold and the one who extends to us forgiveness and eternal life with God and relationship and joy that we are, uh, have the joy of being able to be gathered into this body called the church of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation from around the world. Lord, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so, Father, here this morning, we are here to confess our faith that Jesus is risen. Our faith and our hope and our trust are in him alone. Jesus, thank you. I pray now, even as we worship, that our worship would be uh, an act of proclamation here to each other of the significance of your raising. But may it also be a proclamation to the spiritual realm. The dark forces that are still assailing this world, may it be a proclamation of their defeat, of your victory over them. May our worship shine brightly in this place. May you be greatly glorified by what we sing and what we do. May you be greatly glorified even, even as we go out from this place, as we hold you up in our hearts. Jesus, our risen King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.